Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Steve Brusati. Steve is an American paleontologist at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. With his contributions to the field, including discovering and naming 10 new species of dinosaur, he is widely recognized as a leading paleontologist of his generation. His upcoming book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, combines cutting-edge research, much of which he has been at the forefront of, and personal anecdotes from Steve's own experiences. The result is a comprehensive and engaging look at nearly 200 million years of dinosaur history, taking readers from their humble beginnings, rise to dominance, and ultimate doom. So on the phone with us right now, we have Steve Brusati, author of The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. And Steve, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm very excited to talk about this new book that we put together. Excellent. All right. Um, so to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into paleontology? Yes, so I'm a paleontologist. I'm one of these scientists who studies uh, dinosaurs and fossils and prehistoric life. And right now I'm uh, based at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. I'm on the faculty there, a great university, one of the you know, grand old universities of Europe. But obviously from the you know, way I talk, I'm not Scottish. I grew <laughs> up in the, the Midwest in the U.S. and northern Illinois, uh, in a place where there are no dinosaurs. No dinosaurs have ever been found in Illinois, but I got really enthused about dinosaurs when I was a teenager. Um, My youngest brother was fascinated with dinosaurs. His his bedroom was a dinosaur museum, and that really got me hooked, and I started to go to the museums in Chicago and some of the other museums um, in, uh, in Illinois to see real dinosaurs on display. And, you know, that all inspired me to go to college and study geology and study paleontology. And, um, uh, you know, a bit over a decade later, here I am. Great. So your brother was fascinated with dinosaurs. You pursued a career relating to dinosaurs. And obviously dinosaurs have captured popular culture. What is it about dinosaurs that fascinates us so much? You know, your guess is probably as good as mine. As <laughs> I'm thinking about that, and I don't know really. There's something indescribable about dinosaurs, some essence about dinosaurs that just captivates people and inspires people. If I were, you know, to venture a guess, I think it has something to do with dinosaurs really just being fantastic animals. I think you look at a T-Rex or you look at a Brontosaurus a skeleton in a museum, and it's just so much bigger and weirder and more fantastic than, you know, dragons and leprechauns and unicorns and all of these things that humans have come up with Mm -hmm. in myths and in legends, but dinosaurs were real. So these were the real kind of dragons of prehistory, and they actually lived on this earth, and we can find their bones, but they lived so long ago that there's a real mystery about them. And I think there's a bit of a safe distance, you know, for kids <laughs> to worry about being chased down by a dinosaur, and they can let their imaginations really run free trying to envision what these animals were really like, you know, millions of years ago when they lived here on this same land that we now live on. Mm-hmm. So as a paleontologist, what are some different tools that you use to 
sort of look at fossils, different things you find, dinosaur bones, um, and really get answers about the dinosaurs because you know so much already and you mention a lot of that in the book. Yeah. One of the big parts of the job is going out and trying to find new dinosaurs. You know, mm-hmm. Fossils are the currency of the field. Each fossil is a clue. Each fossil can tell us something else about dinosaurs, about the world they lived in, about the history of life, about evolution. So just like detectives, we're always going out and looking for those clues. And it's not really much of a high-tech game, at least the searching part of paleontology. You want to go to places in the world where there are rocks because we find fossils inside of rocks. And those rocks need to be the right kind of rocks. They need to be rocks that were formed during the time dinosaurs lived during what we call the Mesozoic era from about 250 to 66 million years ago, and they have to be rocks that were formed on land in the sort of environments dinosaurs lived in. And then once we identify those rocks by looking at lots of geological maps, um, we just go out and we walk around and we see what's sticking out of those rocks. And, you know, if we see a bit of bone sticking out or a tooth sticking out, we'll dig a little bit further and hopefully it leads to a skeleton. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just a, a little piece. Uh, other times we might walk around for days and not find anything, but there's not really anything fancy. There's no radar. There's no sonar. There's nothing that can really tell us what's down inside the rock. So it is uh, an old-fashioned game of walking around. But then when we find these fossils, then we can uh, go nuts with them in the lab. We can put all kinds of high-tech tools and techniques onto them. We can put them in CAT scanners to see inside of the bones, to look inside of, say, the brain cavity and figure out what kind of uh, intelligence dinosaurs had, or we can cut open their bones and uh, count growth rings inside of the bones to see how old the dinosaurs were when they died. We can make laser scans of their skeletons and put them into animation software and test ideas about how they moved and how they stood. We can even use really high-powered microscopes these days to figure out the colors of dinosaurs by looking at the actual pigment cells that are still preserved. And a lot of this is new, and it's exciting, and there's so much uh, new technology that's being applied to dinosaurs now, and I've tried to talk a a little bit about that uh, in the book. Mm -hmm. And um, in terms of... um Look at the dinosaurs. One question I had as I was going through, um, you do mention with um, T-Rex how their lifespan was maybe about 30 years or so. Um, In general, do you know how long dinosaurs lived besides T-Rex? Is that young for a dinosaur? Back when I was in school, which wasn't that long ago, but in the the late 80s and and the 90s, you know, even the dinosaur books I read as a kid talked about dinosaurs getting really big because they lived a long time. You know, they grew really slowly, a little bit, year by year, kind of like the way a crocodile grows or an iguana grows. And after, say, you know, a century of life, you would have this enormous dinosaur. And that was the theory for a long time. But now we know that's not the case. We know that most dinosaurs didn't actually live to be that old. And as you mentioned, T. rex, this enormous dinosaur, the size of a bus, seven tons in weight, T-Rex was dead by the time it was 30. And so if I were a T-Rex, I would be dead by now. And that's a real sobering thought. And it's true of a lot of the other dinosaurs, too. Even the really colossal long-necked dinosaurs, the brontosaurus type of dinosaurs, they didn't really live more than 50 or 60 years old, best we can tell. And this isn't guesswork. We actually know this because we can cut open dinosaur bones and 
we can count growth rings in those bones, just like a tree trunk. And so one line was laid down, one ring was laid down every single year, and so you cut it open, you count the rings, and that tells you that you know this T-Rex was, say, you know 20 years old when it died, and we've never found a T-Rex with more than 30 growth lines. So we know that they lived fast, they grew fast, they died young. They were really the James Dean of dinosaurs, as we like to call them. <laughs> So is that, um, did other dinosaurs live longer than that, or? Some did. The big long-necked dinosaurs, probably 50 or 60 years old, although we're always finding new fossils. My colleagues around the world are always finding new fossils, and we always refine these hypotheses, you know, each time a new fossil is found. But it seems like those biggest ones probably did live a little bit longer, but not centuries, you know, and not really even human lifespans. Most dinosaurs probably had shorter lifespans than humans. And some of the really small dinosaurs, the little raptor dinosaurs, they probably uh, lived a lot shorter lifespans. We don't know quite as much about how they grew because their fossils are, are a lot rarer and haven't really been studied in so much detail. But they probably lived a lifespan, you know, similar to a lot of birds today. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, um, one of the things you talk about in the book is that birds are, in fact, dinosaurs. That's right. Birds are dinosaurs. So I'm looking outside the window now, and there's some birds outside. There's some robins outside, and it's a, a just, I think, incredible thing to think about that those are dinosaurs. They are real dinosaurs. They are as much a dinosaur as T-Rex is a dinosaur or Brontosaurus is a dinosaur, and that's because birds evolved from dinosaurs. There was this one group of dinosaurs that got smaller and smaller over time. It evolved feathers. It turned those feathers into wings. Um, it sped up its growth. It sped up its metabolism, and it started to fly, and that's where birds came from. And really, birds are the dinosaur equivalent of, of, of bats. You know, bats are a type of mammal, a, a weird type of mammal that evolved the ability to fly, and birds are merely a weird type of dinosaur that evolved the ability to fly. But it seems like being able to fly was something of a superpower that was probably one of the things that allowed birds to survive that horrible extinction 66 million years ago when this asteroid hit the Earth, devastated the planet, all the other dinosaurs died out, but birds were the only ones that made it through. And here we are today. There's over 10,000 species of birds in the world today. That's about double the number of mammal species. So in some ways, we're still living in a dinosaur world. I <laughs> guess I never thought about it that way before. Um, I'm glad you brought up the extinction at the end. Um, common knowledge today is that um, there was an asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. How, how accurate an understanding is that in terms of how the layperson understands that? I think that idea of an asteroid or a comet or a meteor killing off the dinosaurs is something that's pretty ingrained into pop culture now. I think if you, you know, walked out, out on the street and you asked people why did the dinosaurs die, a lot of people would say asteroid, comet, meteor, explosion from space, you know, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and, and it's true, that did happen. There was a, a huge asteroid or a comet, we don't know which, but one of the two that hit the Earth. 66 million years ago, right at the end of the Cretaceous period. That's the exact moment that dinosaur fossils, other than birds, disappear from the fossil record. And so we know there was an asteroid that hit because it left all sorts of fingerprints. When something 
huge hits the earth, it leaves a lot of evidence behind. And the first sign of that was um, in the 1970s, you know, scientists started to realize there was uh, certain types of chemical elements that were packed inside this narrow little band of rock that marked the end of the Cretaceous period. And those elements were uh, very things that were very, very, very rare on Earth, but very common in outer space. So they were something of a fingerprint of something extraterrestrial happening at that time. And then more evidence piled up during the 1980s. And then really as the 80s turned into the 90s, then the crater was finally found. There was this crater more than 100 miles wide that was found in Mexico. It was buried beneath a lot of sediment, so that's why it wasn't really easily observed from the surface. But, uh, you know, geological surveys, uh, seismic surveys uh, revealed the structure of that crater. And a crater that size would have been left by an asteroid that was probably about six miles wide. So a rock that was more or less the size of Mount Everest. And it would have smashed into the Earth at the, you know, faster speed than a jetliner moves. And it would have uh, impacted with a force of over a billion Hiroshima bombs worth of energy. And that would have caused just untold destruction of the sort that humans, you know, that we have really no experience with, you know, earthquakes that would have been off the charts on the Richter scale, volcanoes would have gone into hyperdrive, forest fires around the world, tsunamis, hurricane force winds, terrible things that these dinosaurs and other things that were alive then had to deal with within the, the seconds and minutes and hours and days after that asteroid hit. This was not a normal time. This was the biggest asteroid that we know of that's hit the Earth over the last half a billion years. So this was one day in Earth history where something so weird, something so out of bounds of normal reality happened that it changed the history of the Earth in that moment forever. And that's why we don't have T-Rexes. That's why we don't have Brontosauruses or Triceratops anymore. Yes, some birds were fortunate and made it through, and some little furry mouse-sized mammals were able to scurry through and survive on the other side. And those were the things that ultimately led to us. So everything really did change that one day the asteroid hit. And there is so much evidence that that happened. It is a very well-established idea now. Mm-hmm. And as great as it is for our development, um, it does seem like it's kind of a shame for the dinosaurs since it seems like they were very much in their heyday when that happened. Um, This may just be purely speculation, but where do you think dinosaurs could have gone evolution-wise if that comet asteroid hadn't hit? That's a fun question, isn't it? (laughs) It's a really fun thing to think about all these what-ifs of Earth history. And I suppose it's similar to a lot of the what-ifs of of human history. You know, what Mm -hmm. if the Archduke was never shot? You know, what if 9-11 never happened? You know, we can can let our imaginations run wild. And a lot of times we're talking about, you know, bad things. You know, what if these bad things didn't happen? Um, With the dinosaurs, I I think there's – they would probably still be here, Um, you know. T-Rex was around when the asteroid hit. Triceratops was around when the asteroid hit. Duck-billed dinosaurs, armored dinosaurs, long-necked dinosaurs. They were all there on that day. They were living all across the world. There were different species on every continent. They were in their heyday. They were showing no signs of, of decline. They were not wasting away. They were still on top. They were still thriving. And then that asteroid came down and everything changed in that moment. So if that asteroid didn't hit, if by some quirk of physics it was deflected at the last minute and skirted off into outer space, I think you would have had the world of dinosaurs continue. And I think that 
world would have continued until today. Now, T-Rex might not still be here. You know, that was 66 million years ago. There would be 66 million years of additional evolution. Dinosaurs were always changing during their history, so they probably would have given rise to new species, and we could only venture to think what some of those new species might have been like. But there's no reason to think that the dinosaurs would have disappeared if it wasn't for that asteroid. There was no sign that anything was wrong with them. And so that means probably that mammals would have never really gotten their chance because it was the dinosaurs dying out that gave mammals their opportunity. Dinosaurs and mammals, they both originated at the same general time, way back in the Triassic period, about 230 million years ago. But the dinosaurs, they diversified, they blossomed, they spread around the world, they got big. They became dominant. The mammals diversified too, but they stayed small. They stayed in the shadows. The dinosaurs were keeping them down. But so quickly after that asteroid hit and the dinosaurs died, you start to see mammals explode in diversity. Mammals start to spread more around the world. You start to see bigger and bigger mammals. Mammals experimenting with new diets, new behaviors, digging mammals, tree climbing mammals. Mammals that are the size of cows all of a sudden are around just a few hundred thousand years after the dinosaur extinction. There was never a mammal bigger than a badger that ever lived with the dinosaurs. So the dinosaurs were keeping the mammals down. And once the dinosaurs were removed, once T-Rex and Triceratops went away, the mammals had that burden lifted from them. And that is what promoted this incredible blossoming of mammals that eventually led to primates and eventually led to us. So I think, in short, um, if that asteroid never hit, the dinosaurs would still be here and we probably would not be. Mm. And now, um, as fascinating as this entire read was, it was also a very sobering experience in a way between, um, you know, just thinking about that, how if the dinosaurs, the asteroid hadn't hit, they probably would be around today, thinking about how long their reign was compared to how long we've been around, how long modern civilization's been around, it's very small in comparison. Um, does it, do you think about that um, in your day-to-day working with these geological time periods? I think about that all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, I think about it more and more as our world around us now is changing more and more. And as we see now almost every day in the news, more reports of rising sea levels and rising temperatures and drought and famine and all of the sorts of things that seem to be happening now as the world is changing around us. We've only been here as a species for a few hundred thousand years. That's it. That's a, Homo sapiens hasn't been around that long, and it's really only been within the last 10,000 years or so that we've created all of these you know, technologically advanced human civilizations. And really, it's been the last century, two centuries, where a lot of the technological advancement has come. That is nothing in the grand scheme of Earth history. That is nothing at all. We are a blip. And dinosaurs were around for over 150 million years. That's when they were dominant. I mean, let's forget about birds for a second, because technically dinosaurs are still with us. But the time that dinosaurs ruled the world was a good 150 million years. We have been here a few hundreds of thousands of years. We have not even come close to the sort of reign that the dinosaurs had. And we are changing the world so so quickly around us. The dinosaurs, they didn't quite have maybe the same capabilities as we did to change their, their, their world, but they were really good. They were survivors. They were the rulers. But even 
that, even that evolutionary success they had wasn't enough to save them when the asteroid came. And I think that's the most sobering thing of all. You know, bad things happen. Things change on the Earth. Catastrophes can happen. And even the most dominant, the most successful, the most diverse, the most well-distributed, the most incredible species can and do go extinct, sometimes at a moment's notice. And I think we have to keep that in mind. And it is, at least for me in my own experience, I do a lot of field work in New Mexico, and, and I work there with some great colleagues. Um, and, and New Mexico is one of the, the, the great places in the world where you can find some of the last surviving dinosaurs, and then the extinction happens, and then you can find some of the mammals that are blossoming right after the extinction, right after the asteroid hit. And when you walk these badlands in New Mexico, you walk through these rocks that are just full of dinosaur bones, and then you come to the time of the asteroid impact, and then right afterwards, there are no dinosaurs anymore, nothing, and you start to see all these mammal bones. Earth history turned on a dime, and I think there has to be a lesson in there for us. If it could happen to the dinosaurs, who's to say it couldn't happen to us? Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm kind of play devil's advocate here for a moment, um, and I feel like this is kind of relevant to what you were just talking about, but why do um, all of these discoveries about dinosaurs that lived millions and hundreds of millions of years ago, why do those matter today? Dinosaurs matter in the same way that studying history matters, studying human history matters. Mm-hmm. I mean, we want to know how our species has changed over time. We want to know, uh, you know, the history of, of wars and empires and civilizations so we can learn from the past, so we can see what mistakes were made and hopefully avoid those things. We can also see what worked and what didn't. Dinosaurs are just another form of history, super ancient prehistory, but, you know, history nonetheless. And what dinosaurs give us is some of the best evidence of all of how real animals evolved over time changed over time in concert with a planet that was always changing, with an Earth where a supercontinent was fracturing and land was moving around, where climate was going up and down, where sea levels were rising and falling, where occasionally there were big volcanic eruptions or asteroid impacts or global warming events. Dinosaurs lived through a lot of the things that we are starting to live through now. They are the natural experiments of Earth history. These are real animals that actually had to put up with this stuff. So I think it's very important to study them and to see how they change. That is why prehistory, why fossils, why paleontology are more important than ever before. And when it comes down to it, in a lot of ways, the dinosaurs were like us. They were the things that ruled the world before we did. They were dominant animals. They lived on every corner of the globe. There were billions and billions of dinosaurs populating really all parts of the earth, every continent, they were on top before we were. They were us. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from them. Very well said. Um, do you have a favorite dinosaur? <laughs> <laughs> to lighten the mood of it, yeah. <laughs> you know, people ask me that all the time, especially kids whenever I go into classrooms. Um, you know, everybody wants to know my favorite dinosaur, and it's a hard question to answer because I think it's like asking a parent, you know, who their favorite child is. <laughs> Even if, you know, parents that have a bunch of kids, they might know maybe one of them is their favorite, but they can't really admit it. And so what I usually tell people is, Actually, the, the truth is whatever dinosaurs I'm working on now, whatever new ones we've just found, 
uh, you know, they, they always capture my imagination. I'm always just driven by that chase of finding something new, and I always get really enthused about whatever is in front of me. But that's a little bit of a cop-out <laughs> answer. So when it comes down to it, you know, if you really force me on it, I would have to be cliched, and I would have to say T-Rex. And I know everybody mm. says T-Rex, but to me, T-Rex is just an astounding animal. There's nothing alive today like a T-Rex. T-Rex was the biggest predator that we know of that ever lived on land. It was the size of a city bus. It weighed seven tons. It had a, a head that was longer than an average person is tall, and that head had over 50 railroad spike teeth that could bite through the bones of its prey, crunch, crush, break the bones of its prey when it fed huge, powerful jaw muscles, big eyes, a great sense of smell, a great sense of hearing, but those tiny little arms and that long tail, <laughs> just a weird animal, and there's nothing alive today that looks like it. Today, the biggest predator is a polar bear, and polar bears are plenty scary. I wouldn't want to run into a polar bear. Some of my colleagues do field work up in the Arctic where they find dinosaurs in places like Alaska. They have to carry guns because of polar bears, because polar bears can attack people, but if you put a T-Rex against a polar bear, that fight wouldn't be fair at all. The T-Rex would just swap that polar bear away <laughs> with tiny little arms. So I think just the power, the sheer power and awesomeness of a T-Rex is just something that is so hard to comprehend. And I've been very fortunate to study T-Rex. It's one of the dinosaurs I've done a lot of work on, and I've found some bones of T-Rex, but what I've really done is I've uh, worked a lot on the evolution of T-Rex and its cousins, these so-called tyrannosaur dinosaurs. There's about 25 of them known from around the world, and I've built family trees of this group and have studied their evolution and have studied you know, how the T-Rex came to be, how this giant predator that lived right at the end of the age of dinosaurs came to be, and it's a pretty cool story. Tyrannosaurs started very humble. The first tyrannosaurs were human-sized animals. They were gangly sprinters that were living in the shadows of other giant dinosaurs more than 100 million years before T-Rex, and they stayed that way for a long time, but then some of them started to get a bigger brain and keener senses, a really good sense of smell, a really good sense of, of hearing, and that seems to have helped them rise to the top of the food chain when some of their competitors went extinct, and then right at the end of the age of dinosaurs, really right before the asteroid hit, that was the heyday of the tyrannosaurs. That's when they had reached the pinnacle of the food chain, taking advantage of those keen senses, growing these enormous bodies, uh, and then they were wiped out. So I think it's just a really neat story there, and they are animals that just inspire me and stoke my imagination. And I think it's true of so many people, especially so many kids. Everybody knows T-Rex. You show a picture of it to anybody, and they're going to recognize what it is. It is the real nightmare haunter. And um, what in the book, I, I do uh, a chapter on T-Rex itself, what I call you know, the, the <laughs> unauthorized biography of the king of dinosaurs. And I go uh, you know, really into detail into what T-Rex was like as a living, breathing, moving, feeding, growing reproducing animal mm. yeah g given that there was that chapter I did I did wonder if t-rex would be your answer there <laughs> <laughs> it is and you know like I know it's really cliched and most people would probably say t-rex but even as a you know a scientist who studied a lot of different kinds of dinosaurs I always find myself going back to t-rex because it is an animal that to me you know if, if you just handed me a sheet of paper and a pen and told me to come up with some some monster, I mean, I don't think my imagination could ever produce something as incredible as what evolution really produced in T-Rex. Mm, absolutely. 
Uh, so, Steve, just one more question for you, and it's another favorite question. Uh, since this podcast is geared towards teachers, administrators, and their students, who was your favorite teacher? You know, I've been very fortunate to have some great teachers. Um, I grew up in the middle of, of the countryside, really, in northern Illinois, in a small town, a town called Ottawa, Illinois, about an hour and a half from Chicago, and, you know, a small kind of Midwestern town. My grade school was literally in the middle of a bunch of corn and bean fields, but I had some great teachers um, there, some great science teachers, particularly Ms. Schultz, uh, Mrs. Roberts, a few others uh, who, you know, I, I still see occasionally when I come back home. Then when I went into high school, I really met uh, the teacher who had the most influence on me. And this was um, one of the science teachers. He taught a bunch of different courses, but he taught a geology course. My small high school had a geology class, and I took that class, and it was my first experience really studying earth science. And that just blew me away, and I knew that that was something I had to then study as a career. And so that teacher was Mr. Jacob Check, Joe Jacob Check, who's now a, a you know, good family friend of ours. I see him all the time when I come back home, came to my wedding, you know, really a really special, you know, bond we formed over the years. I, he's even visited me in Scotland. We've taken him out to the field. I've taken him along on one of my field courses that I now teach my university students. And that was a really special moment to take my teacher out <laughs> to the foreign country that I ended up in, you know, by the, the quirks of, of, of life, really ending up in Scotland, uh, being able to have him come out, take part in that, see me teaching, and also take part a little bit in the teaching as well was really cool. And I've had some great professors, you know, at the university level as well, some great mentors, you know, three paleontologists who I studied under. Paul Serino is an undergrad in Chicago. Mike Benton is a master's student in, in Bristol in England. And then when I came back to the U.S. to do my Ph.D., Mark Norell in New York. They're three of the most famous paleontologists in the world, and I've been incredibly privileged to have all three of them as a mentor. There's no way I would have been in the position to get the job I got to write this book if I didn't have that sort of luck with that kind of mentorship. And now I run my own lab and I have about 10 uh, graduate students of my own and I teach a number of undergraduate classes and it's really fun to be on the other side and to hopefully inspire uh, people through my teaching and hopefully this book inspires people as well. Because when I was a teenager, uh, when I was just starting to get into dinosaurs and fossils, yeah, I had the you know one geology class in my high school. I had some museums in Chicago to go to, but otherwise, I learned from books. And I read the books of Bob Bakker and Jack Horner and Stephen Jay Gould and Peter Ward and some of these great science writers. Um, I was inspired so much by those books, and I really hope that the rise and fall of the dinosaurs can do that for the next generation. Well, that's great. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for that. Uh, Steve, thank you so much. This has been a really fun conversation to have. Thank you very much, and uh, you know, I look forward to uh, seeing how the book does, and I hope that a lot of people check it out, and I hope that it you know, tells the story of dinosaurs and respects their story, because really that's what it is, the story of dinosaurs, where they came from, how they rose up to become dominant, how some of them got really huge, how other ones evolved feathers and wings and turned into birds, and how the rest of them went extinct. Some of my own stories are peppered in there, my own fieldwork and discoveries, but really it is the epic story of the dinosaur empire, and I hope that people like it. I know. I hope so, too. <laughs> All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes, and be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.